Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of The Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. Friends, today we are going to talk about socialization. We're going to talk about what socialization is, um, what it isn't, what we might be doing instead when we mean to socialize, and kind of what's important about it. Because it's important to me, um, it's important to all of us, it's important to the future of dog sports that we all get more clear about this really important topic. So first, let's start with some definitions. Um, Socialization is defined as the process of learning to behave in a way that's acceptable to society. That's the kind of dictionary definition and it seems like it's referring to people, but I I like it. I think it's applicable here. I think it applies to dogs. Um, so again, the process of learning to behave in a way that is acceptable to society. Really interesting definition, actually, because I think in dogs, instead of that, what we think about is just kind of reducing reactions to things or reducing responses to things um, on one hand. And then on the other hand, sometimes we think of it as counter conditioning. So trying to produce happy feelings about something that the dog might have negative feelings about. So that brings me to talking about a couple of other definitions because what inspired this episode was I was watching somebody do what they were thinking was socializing their puppy at a dog event. And what I saw going on was not necessarily what I would call socialization. Um, And so I'm going to talk about a couple of other things that I think we're doing. And one of them is desensitization. So that's defined as diminishing responsiveness through repeated exposure. So if we are responsive to say uh, people in hats, then through repeated exposure to people in hats, we'll be less responsive to that. So, and I like this word responsive instead of the word reactive. But I think in dog circles, people would probably be using the word reactive instead. Um, But I like responsive because it's more, it kind of normalizes it. We attach yuckiness to the word reactive. And I think that that's kind of uh, misplaced because if we're not reacting, we're probably dead. And so we are all reactive. All of our dogs are reactive. That's all really normal. The word reactive has grown its own kind of definition because it's been used for way too long as a euphemism for aggressive. Um, So I like this word responsive. Um, So desensitization would be diminishing responsiveness through repeated exposure. And then something that I see a lot, something that I think most, um, I'm not going to say most, but a lot of puppy training and puppy socialization protocols actually are is flooding and flooding is diminishing responsiveness through prolonged exposure at response provoking levels 
So the difference being with desensitization, you're actually gonna diminish the responsiveness through repeated exposure at non-response provoking levels. So you're gonna start at a level where the dog is not reacting to the thing and you're going to expose the dog to the thing enough times that the dog is no longer responsive to it at all. And with a systematic desensitization approach, you're exposing the dog to the thing um, gradually over time, making sure to keep that responsiveness level down until the dog can sit right next to a person in a hat and not worry about it um, and not respond to it. Versus flooding um, would be that you shove the puppy in a room and everybody's wearing hats. Then you just expect the puppy to deal with it and eventually they stop dealing with it. Or since I did just say that I think this is what's happening a lot, I see flooding happening often in uh, the vet's office. So the puppy is simply put on the table and touched by a lot of people and given the vaccines, etc. moving on. Most puppy crate training protocols are flooding. You just put the puppy in the crate and wait for them to not care about that anymore. Um, I think puppy kindergarten, sometimes the way that it's orchestrated can qualify as flooding. If you just plop a puppy down in the middle of a group of off-leash puppies um, and they're afraid or they're hiding or whatever, and you just leave them there until they no longer respond that way, flooding is at work. Um, one of the ways that I learned to quote unquote socialize puppies would be to just hand my puppy to new people. This is kind of referred to in pet dog training circles as pass the puppy. Um, and what would happen is you'd be in puppy school and you'd all sit in a circle and you'd hand your puppy to the person next to you. And then that person would hand your puppy to the next person. That is classic flooding. That is putting the puppy right in the thick of things and passing them around in a circle. Um, now in my case, I had a puppy that was trying to attack um, the other puppies as the people were trying to pass the puppy around. So that wasn't working so hot um, for a couple of different reasons. Um, but so I think that desensitization may be what we're doing kind of at best with socialization and then flooding might be what we're doing at worst. Um, and I think that again, if we return to that definition of socialization as being the process of learning to behave in a way that is acceptable to, uh, sorry, acceptable to society, then we can maybe focus our goals in a little bit better, you know, better way and be a little bit more goal oriented in our training. So if we look at socialization um, and we look at what we know about socializing puppies and what we know about critical periods or sensitive periods, um, then we can again, be even even smarter here. So because what we know from the research is that puppies have kind of a natural desire to explore their environment and explore socially um, at about three to 12 weeks of age. The desire to explore their environment extends further than that. But what we do know is that if the puppy is not allowed to explore and interact with the environment prior to 14 weeks of age, 
then the puppy's going to develop fear responses, neophobia, so that's just fear of new stuff, and distress in adult individuals. And so we have to allow for free exploration of environments up to and past 14 weeks of age. We also know that there's a sensitive period between about eight and 10 weeks that people refer to as a quote unquote fear period. I wish the phrase fear period would die and I wish that we would call it sensitive period instead um, because I see first of all, excusal of um, overtly fearful, kind of pathologically fearful behaviors in puppies. People just go, oh, that's a fear period when it's not. And I also see people isolate puppies during these times so that they don't get scared, so they don't become traumatized. When in reality, all you would see at that eight to 10 week fear period is a reduction in that desire to explore and interact with the environment. That's actually all you should see. You might see an increased startle response if the puppy does become startled. Um, you will see an increase in reserve. During these times, the puppy will just sort of keep more to himself um, and observe the environment rather than interact with it. It's important that we don't isolate them during this time. I think what people hear is how important it is that they don't become traumatized in that time. And that is important. But when people hear that they isolate the puppy to quote unquote protect them from the world and we create bigger problems um, by doing that. So we have to allow them to explore and interact with the environment in a natural way during this sensitive time. So during the kind of three to 14 week time, it's really important that we do that. That may mean that we expose them to things that produce a response in the puppy. So meaning, especially during that eight to 10 weeks of age um, period, if we enter into say a group training class, and the puppy wants to hide under a chair, allow them to hide under the chair and allow them to observe from under the chair, but keep going to class so that you are continuing to expose the puppy to the world and watch as they turn 11, 12 weeks and start to interact with the world again. If they don't, um, that's when I might, I might actually seek out a professional to help me. But the reason this is important to me is that in agility, I see dogs that are under socialized and it's creating problems in their performance careers. This is something that I talk about in um, a webinar I've got coming up as well as um, a two day seminar that I'm currently kind of working on that's not available yet called Ounce of Prevention, where I wanna talk about what we can do to prevent behavior problems. The number one behavior problems, according to my you know, one survey of the internet, <laughs> um, that keep people out of the sport. So the, the things that make people actually stop competing mostly go back to lack of socialization types of problems. Um, meaning the dog is uncomfortable with people, uncomfortable with dogs, or uncomfortable in the environment, period. 
that means that we're under socializing these animals. And it also means we're not being mindful enough in our breeding programs because both of those things really, really matter. So what would be ideal would be that you have a tiny puppy, it's eight weeks old, maybe it's feeling a little reserved because it's in its eight week fear period, but maybe not. And you allow the puppy to have free exploration of as many environments as possible. And you try to keep those environments as safe as you can, but you allow for free exploration. Also, if you're freaking out about vaccines and disease and all of that right now, understand that the current wisdom that exists in the veterinary behavior community is that if the puppy is healthy and the puppy is from a healthy vaccinated parent, the puppy is safe within normal vaccine protocols to be in whatever environments you want to put them in. Understand that, that disease, those diseases, things like parvo, they, they're everywhere, they live everywhere. So your options are expose the puppy or isolate the puppy. And what we know is that exposure is better for them behaviorally and that if they're healthy and they're from healthy parents um, and they are you know, involved in a modern vaccine protocol, you are safe to take them out. And this is not me saying this. This is the American, uh, this is AVMA. This is also the um, American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior. They have position statements on this. This is important. And I got a lot of information for this podcast from Dr. Karen Overall's textbook on clinical behavioral medicine. So I'm not just riffing off the cuff here. You are safe to take them out and you should. Um, be aware of when you might be flooding rather than quote unquote socializing. So if you walk into an agility trial and it's insane in there and your little puppy gets big pancake eyes and you put them on the ground and they don't want to move and they don't want to move away from your feet, then you just kind of stay in there until they lighten up and get comfortable. You have engaged in flooding your puppy. Now, has that worked for about a million people and it will continue to work? Yes. Um, is it the way that I would personally want to go with one of my puppies? No. What I would rather do is the desensitization route. So exposure slowly over time where my puppy is still comfortable. And really more than that, I'd rather expose them to the same type of environment that's not quite as overwhelming. So rather than trying to walk the puppy closer and closer and closer to the trial environment, bring the puppy in at the very beginning of the day when people aren't there yet and it's, you know, they're barely starting to set up and bring them in again at the very end of the day when it's again not as overwhelming. Rather than the middle of the day, you've got two rings running, you've got the buzzer going off and you've got the, you know, judge on a microphone and dogs are barking and it's insane in there, bring them in during quiet times, maybe during the walkthrough time. And then when they're comfortable with that, then you can bring them in during gradually more crazy times if you feel like that's something that's important to you. And kind of, you know, taking that approach and let's return to the definition of socialization that I stumbled across, the process of learning to behave in a way that is acceptable to society. I love this because it points right at behavior. We're not talking about teaching them to feel in a way that is acceptable. We're teaching them to behave in a way that is, that is acceptable. And what that means is 
exposure to people, exposure to other dogs, taking advantage of the natural curiosity that exists when they're babies that starts to tapers, taper off around 14 weeks of age. Take advantage of that, allow for that exploration, know that the research is clear. When you do not allow for exploration of environments, when you try to isolate the puppy and only take them to puppy class, you know, that once a week and don't take them in the agility trial because they could get scared or they could get a disease and don't take them into Home Depot because of the same reasons, you're actually not doing them a favor. The other fear that I consistently hear about from dog sport competitors is fear that the puppy will be overly social. I had a, a an instructor a long, long time ago. One of my very first agility instructors said that an overly friendly dog is as bad as an aggressive dog. That she didn't want her dogs to want to say hi to people or other dogs ever. And... I had a pretty aggressive dog, so I found that striking because I would have traded his aggressive behavior for friendly behavior any day of the week. Um, and the truth is that you have kind of a spectrum and you have, you know, if you've got on the far left end, you've got barking, lunging, snarling, snapping, and on the far right end, you've got wiggling, whining, coming out of my skin to say hi. Neither of those dogs are comfortable, and both of those dogs could benefit from, could have benefited from a different socialization protocol, and now can benefit from a socialization protocol that involves teaching them how to behave in an appropriate manner. So this is where it's your job to step in and help them act the way that they need to act in this environment. So all of this rambling is to say that we need to be socializing puppies and we need to be doing it smart. We need to stop just throwing spaghetti at the wall here and just taking them wherever we happen to be going and be systematic about it and recognize that they have this really awesome sensitive period during which we should allow them to interact with as many people and as many dogs as we can in as many different places and environments. And should we protect them and be smart? Of course we should. But do not isolate them when you mean to protect them because then you're just causing them, um, you're setting them up for further distress as adults. And if their parents aren't very social or maybe a little bit fearful in new environments, you need to do a bigger, better job because their genetics are not helping them out. And if their parents are friendly and gregarious and, and you know, roll with the punches, great. Do a good job socializing and you will be in the clear as far as these issues that plague people um, that show up on my doorstep wanting, you know, help with their three-year-old dog that is terrified of the fact that there's a man standing in the ring. That's not fair to that dog. That dog's socialization pattern um, did not help that dog to be ready to compete in the environment that we need them to compete in. And that's a, that's a disservice that we've done them. But let's say you have a rescue dog, you have an adult, they came to you with whatever package they're in. Understand what's very important there is to respect fear as a primal emotion and as a very, very unpleasant state of being. It is not fair for any of us to intentionally put our dogs in situations in which they are scared for our kind of greater means. 
Sometimes our dogs might be scared like when they go to the vet or things like that, but that's very, very different and not what I'm talking about. If your dog is afraid in the agility ring, I humbly say that you don't have any business putting them in the agility ring. And you've got to work on helping them feel more comfortable there. And this, you know, gradual exposure might work, but that isn't what you're doing. So if you just throw them in on any given weekend and you're hoping to desensitize, you're hoping that they will habituate to that environment, they probably won't. Because a, a good desensitization protocol would be starting at a place where they're not afraid and building up to the place where um, you, know, you, cur- you observed them being afraid before. What you're doing is ineffective flooding if you just continue to put them in the ring. So if you just continue to put them in the ring, they just continue to learn how to feel afraid in the ring because you didn't make them stay there until the response went away, which is the key part of flooding. If they had to stay in that ring until they relaxed, that would be flooding. But that's not possible. And it's not nice. I, that's not me saying that I recommend that. Please, God, <laughs> don't let anybody think that that's what I meant. What I mean is that the methodology, what you're trying to do here, is ineffective flooding. So it's incomplete flooding, and that's why it's not going to work. Um, and that might be a tough pill to swallow. And honestly, if you let that dog be a couch dog and you get a different dog to do agility with, I feel like that's... That's not a cop-out or being a failure at all. That's kind of doing that dog the service of saying, you're scared here and I'm not going to make you be scared here anymore. So moving on, I've just got two Patreon questions that I want to cover. One says, how do I structure training sessions, especially the short ones that might happen while waiting for the pasta to cook and leave my dog happy and satisfied and not bugging me to keep training? Oh, the answer, um, this is from Lise or Lisa. Um, the answer is those off the cuff sessions that only last a few minutes may or may not leave your dog satisfied. You just want to be ready for them if that's the kind of trainer that you are. So I have some stuff that I can get done kind of off the cuff if I've got a few minutes here and there, but those things I'm already clear about in my head. So I've got, um, basically I work on brushing and grooming if I've got a few minutes. But I'm not going to say that satisfies my dogs. It satisfies my needs of helping them be really comfortable with grooming and helping them tolerate grooming and be groomed. But they don't feel great about that. They feel really good about the training sessions that involve a lot of thinking um, and a lot of body movement. And neither of those things happen off the cuff for me. So when I'm cooking dinner though, I might just work on stationing. So I might just put dogs on stations and go feed them periodically. And now they're kind of being occupied, but again, they're not being satisfied. So (laughs) your dog's bugging you to keep training because you haven't set up satisfactory training sessions and honestly providing them with some kind of enrichment activity like shredding paper or finding kibble in a box is probably a better use of your time than a couple of minutes of training that doesn't have a solid plan behind it and doesn't have any kind of goal or or place to go. 
And then Elisa asks, um, training fatigue for the human. I have been putting in a lot of hard work on behavior modification training plans and it wears me out. I hear you, it wears me out too. Uh, but if I take time off from working on things, the behavior regresses and then I have to take a couple steps back and thus progress is slow. But if I push myself to be consistent, I feel exhausted. How do you make progress on multiple complex issues without wearing yourself down to a tiny nub of a human? Lisa, I think that I could answer this um, with some things I've learned about business also, which is that you have to give yourself permission to have, to kind of allocate time each week towards the projects that drain you and be sure that you're not allocating all of your time there. Even if ideally you would do three BMOD sessions a week, if you emotionally only have one in you, then just do one and just accept that it will take you longer to get to your goals. And the other thing is that if you really are plugging away and you're working hard, but the second you take one day off, you have a regression, then I would encourage you to be speaking with a professional that could maybe talk to you about um, some medication that might help you um, help. <laughs> I'm not talking about meds for you, although that's never a bad idea either. Um, some medication for the dog that might help you make more progress. Sometimes we get to a certain point in our behavior modification and then we plateau. And that's because the dog could really benefit for, from some pharmaceutical help. So talking to a veterinary behaviorist or a, a veterinarian that is well versed in behavior meds isn't a bad idea there. But again, that last sentence, how do you make progress on multiple complex issues without wearing yourself down to a tiny nub of a human means you got to just say, what are the what are the issues that are most standing in my way here? And now I'm going to work on those first. And if you've got multiple complex issues, um, I've been there and it totally sucks. And you've got to just do something. Um something every day even if that thing today is for you to say i don't have it in me today and i'm gonna not that's also okay so i kind of alternate right now when i'm busy with work i try i alternate decompression walk and training days um but my behavior mod stuff i've got a couple of issues i'm working through are daily things um but the reason they're daily things is because they don't require me to leave the house. I can work on them here. Anything that requires me to leave the house is probably only happening two, two to three times a week. And that's if I'm being really great about it. And understand that that is okay. Um, and you may also, you know, get some more help from maybe a different professional, or maybe an additional professional, because things you are owed a fast process and if things are going painfully slow i would encourage you to look deeper um, at what you couldn't be doing differently and then the my final just because i do know a couple of your dogs and what you might be talking about maturity works wonders in a lot of situations um, if your dog is really young and going through some kind of normal-ish adolescence stuff so it's normal but it's amplified and therefore you've got to work on it know that as you work just kind of keep ahead of it keep working on it you don't need to worry that hard about fixing it but keep ahead of it as your dog grows and you'll be amazed at um, what can kind of mellow out just with age so 
Really appreciate the questions, you guys. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron. 